This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I sit down with United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Democratic United States Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is the junior senator from Rhode Island and has served in the post since 2007. From his early days working under former Rhode Island Governor Bruce Sundland to contemporarily serving on prominent positions, including on the Budget, Finance, and Judiciary Committees of the United States Senate, Senator Whitehouse discussed his tenure in public life, using the politics of practicality to make change, and specific actions he has taken in the Senate to help move Rhode Island forward. You may find each of my in-depth conversations with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and beyond on Apple Podcasts or BartholomewTown.com. All right, without further ado, let's get right to it. My conversation with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse in the days leading up to a potential government shutdown and as we approach a new Congress in 2019. All right, Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for your time. Bill, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. A real pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Before we get into the the day's affairs, if you will, and the potential government shutdown and and everything in that sense, I'm curious if you could just walk us through kind of your story. I know you worked for former Governor Sundland, but even just your arrival in Rhode Island, how kind of – how did you get to the place you're at now as a United States senator from Rhode Island? Grew up in the Foreign Service, learned – Um, a lot about the importance of public service and a public service family. Came back here after law school to start practicing law, decided I wanted to go into the attorney general's office, loved uh, the work there, got picked out of that by Governor Sundland to be his legal counsel, my first touch of politics, so clueless that I could not have told you which side of the Capitol the House and the Senate were. (laughs) And I made some unbelievably dumb rookie errors, but I loved the stuff that we were able to do in the atmosphere of crisis that had fallen on the state during that particular period. We got a ton accomplished, enough that uh, Governor Sunland thought I'd be a credible United States attorney. So I served four years as our U.S. attorney and then ran for Uh, attorney general, and ultimately uh, ran successfully for the Senate. How formative was the Sundland period for you? Very. When you think to um, day one, closing the credit unions, um, I had him as a professor at URI, and just kind of going through some of those stories anecdotally, it just seems like that's a powerful figure in all of Rhode Island history, the all-time great. That period was incredibly formative. In two years... We rebuilt how judges were appointed, rebuilt the workers' compensation system, rebuilt the budget process, created a capital budget for the first time, had to do brutal massive cuts in the budget in order to make it balanced and then figure out how you brought things back, started the first universal health care system here in Rhode Island, and I could you know, go on to other things. Um, a, a lot, a lot, a lot got done. And what it really, really, really taught me was that in government there are times when you can accomplish really big things. And uh, two that I'm particularly proud of is the workers' compensation system. Nobody even thinks about the Rhode Island workers' compensation system. It used to be like the perennial nightmare of like the boogeyman that would not go away. 
And we solved it to the point where we now get awards and nobody complains about it and everything's been good for, you know, several decades. The other one was the long battle for separation of powers, which put me uh, fairly often actually against people in my own party. But we had set up a situation in which the legislature was appointing and overseeing and controlling the budget of all these administrative agencies with no executive role. I thought that was unconstitutional, not consistent with the American system of government. We've had a long, long fight over that. It has finally been won. We actually had to go to the people of Rhode Island to win that one. Um, But we're now properly aligned with the American constitutional system. And that referendum took place in the early 90s? By the time, actually, it came to a referendum, um, I think I was attorney general by then. So it would have been like 2002, perhaps. I don't remember the date, but it took a while to get there. It was a long fight. We had to go through the Supreme Court and find out that they wouldn't help us for reasons that are probably best not discussed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, plant the seeds and... You know, keep watering. I suppose that's that's the way. It was a long fight. So you became senator. Well, you became first, of course, attorney general. um, Challenged Murth York, if you will, in a primary for governor, and then in 2006, challenged and defeated uh, the then Republican. Uh, Senator from Rhode Island, Lincoln Chafee. Um, You've been in the United States Senate ever since, rising as a national figure. Um, Considering, you know the 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 climate in 2006 being really fueled by the Iraq war in in many ways. Did you feel like you had a huge advantage going into that race or did you feel like the challenge of defeating the incumbent name recognition, somewhat independent voice of uh, Senator Chafee was, did that feel like an uphill battle, if you will? Yes, it felt like an uphill battle. And in fact, the 06 election class in the Senate is a lot of kind of scrappy people who didn't get escorted into the Senate, you know, in uh, chariots, having been governor or some other inevitable position first, because when people were gearing up for this, um, the president's popularity was still pretty high. So going in, this was not at all clear as to how it would turn out. I think I announced in April or May of 05. From there to November, election day in 06, a lot transpired. So we did very well. We took back the Senate. We had a ton of wins. I think we had 10 wins. And um, that was a big, a big, big deal. But it wasn't at all clear going in that this was going to be a great election for Democrats. So the class of people who stood up to step into that fight was all a bunch of people who are Pretty scrappy. Um, we're still very close, all the 06ers. And there's something to be said for a scrappy class that There's something lasts. to be said for a scrappy class that lasts, yes. <laughs> it's not just coming in. We lost our first – well, Webb stepped out, uh, and we had our first defeat um, with Claire McCaskill uh, in this election, which is too bad. We will, we will miss her. Looking at where we are now, um, you've been a, a vocal critic of President Donald Trump. I recall – a video that was national, maybe on the New York Times, of someone following you with an iPhone video as you entered an elevator, a really passionate, sincere, authentic uh, speech against Trump, if you will, an elevator speech, uh, basically the day after he took office, I recall yeah. this. Uh, since then, you've been a, a critic. Um, what do you believe is 
the most important thing that the Senate can do now to contain, if you will, the policies of Donald Trump, given that you will still be, as Democrats, um, in the minority? A lot of it is going to have to do with uh, calling him out um, and trying to shame the Republicans into doing a little bit of oversight. They would like to do, I think, as little as possible. But there are times when you can shame them into having to do some oversight. I think when the family separation policy started to be deployed, we put so much pressure on the Republicans to do a hearing that ultimately they felt they had to do something. So they had a private briefing from administration officials. And that array of administration officials who came in were so horrible and were so wretched in answering questions that it really embarrassed the Republican senators. And I think at that point they felt they kind of had no choice but to actually have a public hearing. And that didn't go well for them either. And Trump ended up reversing, or at least nominally reversing, uh, that policy. So there was an example of how by uh, putting moral and public pressure onto the Republicans, we actually forced first a briefing, then a hearing, and then a change. And I think um, we can still do that. We also now have the ability to uh, urge our House colleagues, congratulations, David Cicilline and Jim Langevin, for being in the House majority. A lot of hard work on both their parts, much appreciated. But we also have the ability to go to the chairman on that side and ask them for gavels. And here's the thing. If you are a Republican Senate chairman and you can bottle up some problem of the Trump administrations, you might very well be willing to do that. But if over on the House side, a Democrat chairman is going to let a rip on that problem and you will not have bottled anything up successfully, what you'll be doing is missing out on the fun of oversight and looking like a fool for not taking an interest in something that is becoming more and more evident every day as the House have its hearings, suddenly that changes the dynamic a little bit. And suddenly it's not so much fun anymore to be a complete obstructor. So we might actually, because of where the House is, be able to push our Republican colleagues to be a little bit less spineless in their oversight. And you may have actually seen a kind of example of this with the Energy Committee. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, who I think actually is a really terrific person, uh, has just agreed to have hearings on climate change in the Senate Energy Committee. I'm not sure that she would have been willing to do that had it not been apparent that the related committees in the House were all going to be gearing up. Right. It's the politics of practicality, I suppose. Yeah, at this wanting point. to be part of the action. Plus, also not being on the wrong side of history on Plus some of these issues. Plus, not being on the wrong side of history. Plus, what's the point in trying to prevent oversight if it's going to happen anyway? Right. When you think about um, you know representing Rhode Island, is there anything in particular that you try to work towards in the in the chamber right now that's specifically feeding back whether it's infrastructure, military spending, anything in particular that you kind of big picture see as an essential component of moving Rhode Island forward? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, all the work that I did on opioids was very Rhode Island specific. That was the biggest piece of opioids legislation ever. It was bipartisan. It was the last major bill Obama signed into law, and it provoked a flood of funding to follow that I think is going to really help our uh, recovery and treatment community 
um, going forward. So that was very, very Rhode Island-based. All of my work that has to do with oceans and climate is ultimately very Rhode Island-based. All you have to do is click onto storm tools and look at what our own Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council is saying about what the damn state's going to look like if we don't take action. It's going to change the map of Rhode Island. We're going to become like the Rhode Island archipelago. Not on my watch, not if I can help it, not with the fishing community so beleaguered uh, down in Galilee, not with so much at stake for Rhode Island's coastal economy. So to me, that's a really, really big deal. These oceans things, they're going to be significant 20 years from now and 40 years from now, perhaps even more than they are now. But decisions we make today will have a big impact out then. Uh, certainly just go down to Matunic and you can observe erosion, erosion you know, may or may not be provable to be tied to climate change or anything that you can legislate, but it sure is a good look at what is kind of most likely coming. If Pop in at Tara's or the Ocean Mist for a nice cold one. You will have a terrific afternoon or evening. And you can also step out and look at where the ocean washes underneath those establishments, and they're propped up on pilings, and go look at old photos from not that long ago, from like the 90s and right. from the 2000s. And you can see that in front of those same places, there was sand going out for hundreds of yards, people playing volleyball. It was a just completely different environment. We've lost all of that to the sea. Absolutely. I grew up playing on that stage in high school, and that was, you know, 98 through 2002. And yeah, you'd go out and you could play volleyball exactly as you're describing. So it's rapid. It's rapid. What about the wind towers? That's something that the wind turbines, obviously, yep. today there's there's news on that, and just in terms of the private sector aspect of it, the bidding process, if you will. But broadly speaking, the monetization, the privatization of the ocean floor, yep. where do you stand on that and how that might impact Rhode Island? Well, I'm super excited about the uh, wind farm uh, off of Block Island. I worked very hard to make sure that it was able to get cleared through the Department of Interior process. I'm very proud of the way Rhode Island got together between the university and the CRMC and the environmental community to set up a process that allowed for a really successful outcome. At the end, I think pretty much everybody was happy with those early wind turbines. And it set a lesson for get everybody in the room, figure it out, and then move on rather than have it be constant warfare taking on group after group. So then we move from it's possible to now let's start leasing these big tranches of the ocean. And unfortunately, what we've seen from the opening uh, company, Vineyard Wind of Massachusetts, is that they kind of rushed to deploy without going through the careful, inclusive process that Rhode Island did, leaving the fishing community feeling very overlooked and left out. And now they've got a very serious fight on their hands because they started out on the wrong foot. And I hope that sends a really strong lesson through the rest of the offshore wind community that you've got to get this right from the get-go. You've got to bring the fishing community in from the get-go. You're the new kids. They've been out there fishing these seas for generations. So be respectful. There's plenty of resource out there to do this. And I, um, I'm actually pretty bullish on this as long as the uh, offshore wind interests aren't too grabby about trying to push everybody out of the way to meet their economic numbers. All right. It's like maritime gentrification in a way, you know, yeah. sort of the same challenges of how can this work yeah. for everyone, but move forward as well. And they got friends out there in the, in parts of the fishing community. I mean, the 
offshore wind turbines off Block Island are destinations for recreational fishermen and for people who take people out, day fishermen who take people out for pay and let visitors go fishing because guess what? Stuff grows on the pilings and then fish go to eat what grows and then the bigger fish come to eat the little one and pretty soon you've got kind of an artificial reef going and the feedback I've gotten from Block Islanders involved in that part of our fishing economy has been hugely positive. The problem has been the trawlers and the draggers and the people who need more open ocean um, and that's where the blockade has been with Vineyard. I believe that Vineyard has recognized its error and is now trying to make things right as rapidly as it can. But, you know, what do they say? First impressions are lasting impression, and their first impression was not helpful. Also, there's been some improvements I've seen in terms of considering uh, the migration patterns of birds and also of whales and how that the turbines affect yep. their existence and so on and so forth. So it's just... I guess the idea is people seem to be communicating about the problems associated with these with these broader projects with wind yeah. turbines, and it seems like we're heading in the right direction, I hope. Like a lot of things, you know, people come in and they set up what they need to accomplish based on economics, finance, balance sheet, payments to people, so forth. And if you don't take into account, A, Mother Nature, uh, and B, the other people who want to use the ocean with you – you're going to make some very big mistakes. You can't just drive something like this off balance sheets. That's a necessary but not sufficient condition. And so making sure that when you build them and the you know force that's needed to bang uh, the pilings into the ocean floor doesn't interfere with the coast and the you know peace and quiet that whales need when they're coming through there's a way to make this work if you get everybody who understands these things together and you listen but if you come in bossily being driven by your bankers to do certain things you're going to make these dumb mistakes you got to listen yeah that's the key i mean that's the key to everything right now in it's a, a key sense to a lot yeah well you'd, you'd like to see that more at least i'd like to see that more even on basic issues of you know there, there are issues that are that you'll never be able to get there on maybe pro-life, pro-choice. There's always going to be a fundamental disagreement. Yep. But it feels like we've gotten to that level of visceral, if you will, that comes out of debates like that with topics sometimes, whether or not a road should be closed and there's going to be a traffic jam. How do we polish up society now and make it a little more mature? Where does that come from? Yeah, I think a lot of this, uh, some of the stuff is, is just the disagreements have been weaponized. Um, I think of the guns issue. Here we are, you know, the uh, anniversary of the little children getting slaughtered in Sandy Hook when state over is upon us. And if you look around, there's actually a lot of stuff that we can do to make Americans safe from these weapons uh, that gun owners and even NRA members actually agree with. But at the far outer end is the NRA as a political establishment that doesn't ever want to yield an inch, does not want compromise, and raises an awful lot of money for its executives by uh, taking uncompromising positions uh, that are often contrary to what, where the actual members are. And if you could de-weaponize that issue so that you're actually dealing human to human, I think you'd find that there's actually a lot of support for making sure that 
everybody who has a weapon has gone through a proper background check. And, you know, if there are certain things going on in your life, that in your mental health or with respect to your relationship so that you're under a restraining order or something like that, that we really absolutely make sure that uh, guns are not in those hands. One of the big stories right now in Rhode Island is the results of the uh, RICAS test. It's yep. obviously outside of your jurisdiction, if you will. But I wonder if there's anything that on the federal level can be done to even just through that politics of practicality, as you alluded to earlier, is there anything that can be done to help improve the scores on the standardized tests? It's tough to, to say to improve education because it's only in this one area that we're analyzing standardized testing but that's fundamental as well yeah um what we tried to do in the last big bill that we passed in a very bipartisan way in the senate was actually try to take the pressure off a lot of this standardized testing um particularly the testing that was testing the school and not so much testing the kids and what we saw particularly in a lot of uh, communities where kids come to school with a lot of issues. They may not know a lot of English. They may be new immigrants who haven't had a lot of education so far. They may have horrible things going on at home that make it hard to pay attention in school. There could be a lot going on in their lives that doesn't necessarily show up for the average student at Lincoln or Barrington. Yeah. And those schools having to deal with those problems and deal with the results that those kids were posting were narrowing the curriculum to basically what the school needed to get these kids to do on the test to keep going. And um, I thought that was really bad because they're very important parts of an education, like arts. I see some beautiful art on the, uh, in, in the studio where we are, music, um, history, uh, civics, and uh, you know, government. These are all things that are really important for Americans to know about. And for some kids, it's why they come to school. They may hate the rest of it. But if you knock, <laughs> yeah. So if you knock all that stuff out, so that you can pound uh, English and mathematics, so that the kids will do better on the test, so the school won't get in trouble, you've really compromised those kids' education. So that gives me. It's a long way of saying I get a little hesitancy when I hear people saying, "Ah, oh, the tests aren't showing up right." Um, I just think we need to keep a, a very broad perspective about what's going on in school and what really matters to kids. And while there's some basics that, yes, kids need to get out of school, we can't forget the part that for some kids, some parts of their education are like the positive flair that attracts them and that they're going to pursue for their lives. And it's their the positive, passionate thing that they're doing. And you don't really get there just through tests. You get there with making sure that that pathway is available to them. So it's a, you know, I, I just get very cautious about, you know, we're doing badly on the testing. Quick, let's go, you know, do stuff. Right. And if you examine Central Falls, for example, you know, I referee soccer, you know, yep. um, you know, you referee the Central Falls kids and you're talking with them in, you know, whatever, even if it's an English language learners, um, those are smart kids. They're not dumb yeah. kids. Those, there's nothing that's completely off base as a broad statement. Potentially yeah. on, in, within these areas, yeah, it's important. But I completely, completely. I agree just spent with a morning at uh, the uh, high school at Central Falls, and um, there was a computer lab 
that was pretty astonishing. I mean, it was way out of my league. Let's just put it that mm -hmm. way. And the teacher was going around helping people one by one. They were doing really cool kind of design work uh, on, on the computer. I was totally impressed. Then we did a, a class of um, an English class where they were preparing and had memorized Shakespeare to compete in a national competition for the delivery of either a soliloquy or a poem, one of the uh, Shakespearean uh, sonnets. And these kids had memorized a lot of stuff. It was first-class quality work that I was seeing right there. Yeah. And then I went to another classroom where there were two teachers and an assistant maybe in the classroom, and there were like 35 kids. And it's hard to manage just on those kind of numbers uh, when you're trying to keep kids moving along and give them personal attention in a classroom and all of that. So you really saw that there's a lot that is good that is happening in that high school. And that's true, I think, of a lot of our high schools that we think of as like, oh, the troubled schools. Yeah, I, I that's it. It's it's a, head, a kudos to those teachers in those quote unquote troubled schools that you know find a way to individualize education and also bring skills to people that otherwise may not have any access to it at home or in any yeah. other place. Really emphasizing the value of being there. It's not the teacher's fault if the child only started learning English a year or two ago. It's not the teacher's fault if they just came from another country and had a terrible education foundation laid for them in that foreign country. And it's not the teacher's fault if there's bad stuff going on at home that is traumatizing the kids so that when they come into school, they're not really there ready to learn. But it is the teacher's problem. And they have to do often heroic things to fight their way through that and make sure that those kids have a safe learning environment and can keep moving forward. I worship the ground our teachers walk on, frankly. Um, last question. Uh, Rhode Island has changed demographically as, um, frankly, I'll say, you know, there's a lot of immigrants in Rhode Island. I think that's a great thing. My wife's Brazilian. She immigrated to the U.S. Um, half the people in this building are, I see on a daily basis. I think that's a great thing that we, we have in Rhode Island. Some would say we have a more liberal um, immigration system within Rhode Island than in other places just in terms of how a person can function in society if they're here illegally or going through the process. But what's your message to Rhode Islanders out there that may not have all of their immigration papers in order, whatever it may be, how, what should they do? Should they be afraid to go through with the process of trying to become a citizen or become an, you know, legal in these trying times with all of the rhetoric that we hear out there right now? Well, I worked very hard in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee on that immigration reform that would have given people a sensible pathway to citizenship without trying to um, turn America into an armed camp of investigators running around and trying to arrest and and uh, deport millions and millions of, of people, uh, many of whom were rather deliberately brought in by U.S. policies that wanted the cheap labor that they presented. Um, so to turn around and now blame them, I think, is um, really unfortunate, and I don't think that America's putting its best face to the world with things like the family separation policy. Uh, we don't know yet why this seven-year-old girl died 
um, after hours and hours and hours uh, in the custody of the U.S. government. If, as early news reports suggest, it was because she wasn't given water after she and her dad came in, you know, dehydrated from trying to make it through to the U.S. in the heat. Again, that's not what we want America to look like to the world. So um, I think we can, we can and should do an awful lot better. And um, the effort to demonize immigrants for political purposes falls not only on those who don't have their paperwork in order, but on people who are here perfectly legitimately because um, I don't think that the political effort, particularly by the Trump uh, administration and campaign, to delegitimize immigrants has anything to do with their immigration status. I think it has everything to do with trying to create a fortress America that people have in mind from the 1960s and um, that to the extent that they're fomenting distaste for people in America, they're not being selective about what their immigration paperwork is. Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Bill, good to be with you. Thank you for sharing your podcast with me. As always, thank you for listening to the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.